Um, it's, great to, it's great to be here. It's great to be back at 10.30. Uh, it's been a while. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, and yeah, thanks for your support um, with KCEA and your prayerful and financial support. It's just wonderful. Uh, if you haven't got a sheet, if you're a young person, grab one now. That'd be good. Um, if you've got a pen and some paper, it'd be good to, um, to take notes as well um, so you can look back on it later. Well done for getting out of bed this morning. Um, it was a rough one for me. Uh, let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at Luke chapter 3. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you uh, that you are good to us all the time, uh, when things are good and when things aren't. Uh, help us this morning uh, to be changed. Uh, change our hearts, refine us to be more like uh, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, our passage this morning in Luke 3 centres on a guy called John. Uh, he was a bit of a strange man, we're told. He was dressed in a tunic of camel's hair with a leather belt. Comfortable? No. Uh, he ate locusts and he ate wild honey. Think grasshopper. Also, not cool. He lived not in a city, not in the comforts of a city, but in the wilderness. He sounds like an interesting bloke, to say the least. But this man, John, John the Baptist, was by Jesus' own declaration, a great man. Last week, we began a new uh, little sermon series in Luke's Gospel, and, I, and I'm stealing from Josh here from last week. But we're thinking about life-changing days, things that happen, concrete things that will make life different, perspective-changing, even life-changing. I'm hoping that we'll see today uh, John the Baptist's message will change everything anew for us today as it did uh, for the people he was preaching to all those centuries ago. Today our focus is a story, uh, perhaps a year or so before Jesus arrives on the scene and begins his formal ministry. So let's get into it. Uh, the focus of chapters 1 and 2 is on the days leading up to the births of John uh, the Baptist and the Lord Jesus, but we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, Luke begins with listing... Uh, the or listing the leaders and giving us an insight into the political setting in those days. He lists five Roman political leaders. Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pilate, who we're familiar with. Herod, who we're familiar with also for all the wrong reasons. Philip and Lysanias. He lists two Jewish leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. I think these details ground us to the reality uh, of the world where John and Jesus uh, came into, that their ministry was based in. John's ministry in verse 2 is the word of God. His ministry was of heaven. It was of eternal things. So in just these two verses, John and ultimately Jesus' ministry are tied to both earth and to heaven, eternity. But let's pause how did we get here to this point in time with John at the beginning of the New Testament? The record of the Old Testament ended in about 430 BC with the writing of the prophet Malachi. You can flick back a couple of pages in your Bible and you'll find it. The last prophet of the Old Testament era. So what happened in those 400 plus years between the book of Malachi and when John rocks up on the scene here in Luke chapter 3? What happened to Israel? Well, the prophet Malachi gives us a little bit of context. In Malachi's day, Israel was in exile. They weren't in their land. 
God, in his judgment against Israel's sin, kicked them out of the promised land. Not good. The nations of Assyria, Babylon and Persia, mighty powers ruled over them oppressively. Then, after Malachi, 400 years pass. And the people of Israel continued in exile, some living in Palestine, but uh, many living scattered across the world. In the 300s BC, the Persians were conquered by a bloke called Alexander the Great. You probably have heard of him. He also ruled over Palestine. He died and his empire was split up amongst his four generals. All of this was following, was followed, excuse me, by more suffering, surprises there, to the people of Israel. The religious sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they rose up during this time. But no word comes from the Lord to Israel for 400 years. That's why I guess these words, uh, these years, sorry, are often called the silent years. It's sort of a dark ages uh, for the nation of Israel. What is fascinating are the very last words of the Old Testament, the last words spoken to God by his people for 400 years. Let me read them out to you. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of, of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These last words of the Old Testament, <clears throat> do we know who they speak of? I think they're speaking about John the Baptist. He's not actually Elijah who died in the 800s BC, but he is a type of Elijah coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Friends, do you see what's happening here? These words from Malachi are coming true. God is delivering on his promises. Now back to Luke. Uh, so back here in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 3, John's coming on the scene is an extraordinary event for Israel. Anyone who was paying attention would realize that God has not forgotten his people. He had not forgotten the promises he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob 2,000 years before. God was at work. What a thrilling time to be alive in Israel. After 400 years of Israel ignoring God, after multiple rounds of, of political and moral strife, after episodes of violence and oppression against his people, God has remembered them. He's showing compassion once again to these stubborn sheep of his. They deserve death and abandonment, as do we, for our rebellion against him. But guess what? God is faithful and he sends John. John had a specific and clear message in verse 3. Have a, have a look at it if you've got your Bible open. Repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of sins. We'll talk about this more in just a moment. Then, in uh, verses 4 to 6, uh, Luke quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, written in roughly 700 BC. Through Isaiah, God told us that a prophet was coming to prepare a way for the Messiah, for God's king. If anyone in Israel was paying attention to the scriptures, and they were, 
they had to realise how significant this moment was. After nearly 450 years, God was speaking to Israel in a powerful way. And the Messiah, the Saviour, was coming soon. We'll move to uh, this chunk in, verse seven, in verses 7 to 14. Uh, John is talking to groups of people who are, who are standing there. And John has some pretty strong words of warning to these people. He says, you're facing God's wrath for your rebellion against him. Flee that wrath by repenting. And we'll know that your repentance is genuine if it produces fruit. In other words, repentance looks like something. You can tell by looking at it. He says, don't depend on your family line to save you. Uh, they were all about the family lines in, in ancient Israel. They loved uh, who, who they were from, their parents, their fathers. They loved family lines and genealogies. But he says, just because you are in Abraham's family, don't think that that alone will save you. Or I might say, just because I was born into a family with Christian parents who taught me uh, how to serve uh, Jesus, how to uh, serve his people, just because I was born into that family, that doesn't secure my eternity. If we don't repent, turn around and say sorry to God, we'll know by its lack of fruit. God's judgment, friends, is real. Then Luke uh, tells us the people's somewhat encouraging response, I think, in humility and genuineness. They ask, well, what shall we do then? John explains to three groups what repentance looks like. Picking up at verse 11, uh, uh, sorry, verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him one who, uh, share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So to put it simply, instead of being selfish and greedy and hoarding your stuff, be generous with it. The tax collectors in verse 12 also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. To the greedy, the sometimes corrupt and the definitely despised tax collectors, he doesn't tell them to leave their occupation. John isn't interested in some social revolution. He tells them to be honest, not greedy, show integrity. This is the fruit of repentance. And then the soldiers in verse 14, have a look at it. And we, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money uh, from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. To the soldiers, probably Jewish soldiers, he tells them not to use their authority and their weapons to intimidate and threaten people and take their money, but to be content with what they have. Friends, there is so much to be said about this topic of repentance. The Bible speaks about it a lot. There are no surprises there. We could be talking about it all day, but I want to narrow the focus primarily toward what Luke records here uh, from John. So what is repentance? It's a nice religious sounding word, but what is it? I want to argue with, uh, I want to tell you that there are five things I think that make up uh, what being a repentant person looks like. The first is change your mind. 
The word repentance simply means to change, change your mind. One, uh, and since John connects repentance with sin in this case, he means to change one's mind about sin, to line up our view with how God views sin. God is holy and he is pure and he hates sin. So what are we to do? We're to move from loving our sin and serving it to hating it as he does. Second, future things. Repentance has in mind future things, future judgment. John warns them in verse 7 and verse 9 to flee the wrath of God which is coming. Third, simply trust. Implied in all of this is faith. Faith is simply trust. Trusting and believing that what God says is true and it is good for us. If we don't believe that God is real or that God is holy and just and punishes and, and his judgment rightly falls on us for our wrongdoing, you wouldn't repent, would you? Why would you? There'd be no point. Fourth, and I think for me this is the big one, humble yourself. It's impl uh, also implied here is humble self-surrender to God. Like me, uh, and like many of you, I think, in your, in your darker moments, someone who is full of pride will never admit that they are wrong or that they deserve punishment for their wrongdoing from God. We seek to justify ourselves and excuse ourselves. So repentance takes a large dose of humility and self-surrender to admit before a holy God that he is right and shock horror, we are wrong and to surrender to his goodwill for our lives. And fifth is visible action. Repentance is visible. It involves some type of outward, visible action. In verse 8, John says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We could say, again, and I will, repentance looks like something. The people are humble enough, to, uh, humble enough to ask John, what does repentance look like for us? What should we do? This last point, one that is emphasised in the passage this morning, is so important. In verses 10 to 14, John tells two of the groups to show integrity with money. Let's say that I've stolen from you, but I come to, uh, come to you with words of repentance. I'm sorry, I was wrong. I don't want to do it again. Will you forgive me? The question is, how do you guys know that I'm actually repentant of my sin toward you? Well, you'll know because my behaviour changes, my actions change. You would know that my words of repentance are genuine because I back them up with my actions. So we understand repentance in some ways on a human level, but re the repentance that John speaks of in these words are on a heavenly level, focused on our relationship with, with God, our, the forgiveness of our sins, fleeing from his just wrath. Friends, repentance is the key to the door of restoration with God. Like me, I know that uh, many of you sitting here in this room would call yourselves followers of the Lord Jesus and you would say that there was a time before you followed him that things were different. Self-reliance, 
pride, arrogant, arrogance, excuse me. I know for myself, around year 10, my life changed and it would never be the same again. I couldn't go back to my former independent ways of ignoring God and rebelling against him. I think I was like, and I think many of you too, were like uh, some of those people in verses 10 to 14 who asked, what should we do? My repentance was necessary for me to approach God for forgiveness and for eternity with him. But repentance isn't just for the day of salvation. Once we enter into a new life found in Jesus, a life of being born again, we continue every single day in the same spirit of repentance that saved us. We continue to look to Jesus, to go to him. Brothers and sisters, this is how the Christian lives. Go to him. Think of these five points if you've, or look at them if you scribbled them down at our definition of repentance. All of those are beautiful descriptions of the peace-filled, joy-filled Christian life. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance brings restoration with God, peace with him. It shows that we rely on him, that we trust him. Friends, repentance is listening to Jesus, looking to him daily. Let me just uh, touch on verses uh, 15 uh, to 18, just very, very briefly. In, in verse 15, the people recognized John was speaking for God. Um, they, they asked him straight out, um, are you the guy that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah that, that we've been waiting for all these centuries? John is clear, no. The one who is coming, this Messiah, God's King, is far, far greater than I am. Compared to him, I am so lowly that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and tie up his sandals. That is low, very low. John was preparing the way, preparing hearts for Jesus, the one who would ultimately deal with our sin and death once and for all. The one who has the power to forgive. I want you to have a look in your Bibles if you've got them, got them open at verses 21 and 22. We turn our attention from John to the Lord Jesus, the one that John was pointing to, the one that John was clearing the road for. When all the people were being baptised and when Jesus had also been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Just imagine this scene for a second. Two things here that I want to point out. The fir firstly, the heavenly ministry of Jesus is confirmed. Jesus' ministry is not some man-made idea concocted in a staff room with graphs and sheets and targeted numbers. The God, God in heaven, the creator, he endorses his son. My beloved son, with him I am well pleased. The voice from heaven leaves no doubt. This wasn't just another sinner being baptised. This was the sinless, eternal Son of God, pleasing the Father. This is the guy. We ought to listen to Jesus. We ought to honour God's Son as we honour him. We ought to live our lives in service to him. And ultimately, we ought to go to him for forgiveness.
Those there who, who had repentant hearts and were baptised would have believed that Jesus indeed was the Christ, the one that John was preaching about, the one that he was preparing hearts for. Even a sceptic standing there, you would think, would have had to have been amazed by what was going on. And I think secondly, here we see the beautiful Trinity. The Trinity is the doctrine of the Christian faith that there is one God in three persons. Some have tried to summarise the doctrine like this. God is one. He is three. The, the three are distinct and the three are equal. The voice came from heaven. The three persons of the Trinity were all manifested at once. The Holy Spirit came in bodily form like a dove. The voice of God the Father was heard and the beloved Son was baptised. Friends, that is the passage for this morning. I guess the important question we need to ask is, how does this change my life today? How do I go away from here different than when I came in? So far this morning, we've emphasised the meaning. What do these verses mean? So I want to ask, what do we do? What is some significance and application for us to take away from Luke's message? And I think it's a couple of things, but the first is, have a heart of repentance every day. It's up on the screen. This was John's message to prepare hearts for Jesus. Then Jesus spoke the same message as did the apostles in the years after that. So John's message spoken 20 odd centuries ago is just as relevant today. Brothers and sisters, who do we listen to? Do we trust Jesus? Do you look to Jesus each day for repentance? Repentance is the means that God has given us to escape his wrath and receive eternal life. Once we have entered into new life with God through his son, we continue every day with that same spirit of repentance. To have our eyes wide open every day to the darkness of sin, but each day going to Jesus, turning to him, trusting in him and not ourselves. And so we press on to know Jesus every single day, even when it is costly to us. So how do we walk with a heart of repentance? This is, this is the question. There's no formula here, but I think there's a few things that we can do. Friends, stay in the scriptures and prayer daily. Draw near to Jesus, look to him. Stay in fellowship with God's people. Isolation leads to us deceiving ourselves. We need one another to keep walking this road of faith. Bear fruit in, in keeping with repentance. Take action. Repentance looks like something. Let your heart be evident in what you do. Let me wrap up with this. From Luke 3, when I read uh, these words that he wrote um, so many years ago, I think what a time to have been alive. After 450 years, when it seemed that God had understandably abandoned his people, he returns to the scene in the most powerful of ways. He sends a prophet named John into the world that was promised. This prophet announces some stunning news, staggering news. God's king is coming. The Messiah is coming. The saviour of the world. The forgiver of sins. 
I hope we can get our minds around this historical moment in Luke. God's plan, set in motion before time even began, is stunning. Mankind, starting with me and with you, have shown that we hate and despise God as evidenced by our sin. God is just to bring his judgment on us, but guess what? The Messiah has come. God's mercy in forgiving us triumphs in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says so magnificently in his letter to the church in Ephesus, I'll read it for you in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This message that John came to deliver is not just perspective changing, but it's life changing. It was for those who are standing there listening to John the Baptist being baptised, and it is for us today right now. Look to and live for Jesus. Daily go to him in repentance, the only one with the power to forgive. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for your words to us in Luke chapter 3. We ask that you would help us to be people uh, who want to repent, who want to humbly lean on you, look to Jesus uh, for our forgiveness. Uh, please change us, Lord. Uh, to be more like uh, your son this week. Amen.